Welcome back to Alger Assembly of God. Welcome back to our study in our series entitled Rebuild. Uh, we are working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Nehemiah, looking at some great principles for you and I as we rebuild our own personal lives, perhaps in our family, and our church. We believe that God is designed to rebuild, to renew, and to refresh. As we take a look at uh, Nehemiah, the Israelites, he was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he was on his way back. He heard in chapter 1 what Jerusalem was like. Remember, he said, sat, he wept, he fasted, and he prayed. That was the, the big personal challenge he faced. Chapter 2, a little bit of a political challenge. Remember, the king saw him, saw him uh, being moved and asked, what was wrong? What can I do? And so he prayed and he boldly made his request to the king, and the king granted that. Chapter 3, a little bit of an administrative challenge. As they were beginning the work on the wall, he's positioning the right workers in the right places for the right reasons. Remember, there's a whole bunch of wall segments gates that needed to be rebuilt. And so that was the process here in Nehemiah. Chapter 4, last week, our time together, he dealt with the big topic of discouragement and opposition. And you and I many times will face that. Ever been discouraged? Ever Maybe it seems like nothing is happening, nothing's quite going right. And we took a look at how Nehemiah rallied the troops under the pressure and opposition that was coming against him. So today here in chapter 5, internal conflict threatens to divide and destroy. So chapter 4, it was kind of from outside forces. Chapter 5, we're going to see kind of some struggle and strife internally. You ever had difficulty maybe amongst your family, amongst your friends, amongst coworkers, amongst those in school, amongst those in the community? Unfortunately, sometimes conflict happens. Now, maybe you're someone who say, I never have conflict. I get along with everybody. And that might be true. But what if those people don't always get along with you? I'd venture to say, you and I have faced some difficulties and conflicts. Sometimes, unfortunately, it happens in the church. Here is an article from the archives of Landover Baptist Church in Maryland. Here's what it reads. 100 years of Christian fellowship, spiritual love, godly unity, and community growth ended last Tuesday in a fit of congregational discord not to be rivaled in this century. I mean, the way this article is going, you are ready for the blow-up of all blow-ups, right? Get ready. Here it comes. The source of dissension? A piano bench. This bench had been sitting beside a piano on the stage for years and years. Some wanted to get rid of it. Some wanted to move it to a different place. And some wanted to leave it right where it was. The church literally split over a piano bench. Now, we'll skip to the ending of the article, and here's what they wrote. At present, Holy Creek Congregation will be having Four services a day. There's been an unspoken agreement mediated by Pastor Fred of Landover Baptist Church. Each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. 
Since the head pastor is not speaking to the associate pastor, each will have their own service, which will be attended by the various factioned members of the congregation. We are told that the services are far enough apart time-wise that neither group will come into contact with the other. Now check this out. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services so as to please both sides and avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. Did you catch what I, what I was hearing? Could result in violence. A church splitting into multiple factions based on the location of a piano bench. But it happens. And I would venture to say things similar to that might happen in your own life. Things might happen like that at school. Things might, like that might happen in your job and in your workplace where conflict erupts. Conflict is probably not something you and I love to deal with. I mean, if you love conflict, raise your hand. Not too many takers on that. In fact, I don't see any hands. Most people tend not to like and seek out conflict, yet you and I know conflict is inevitable. And so as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to look at how to handle conflict. We're going to work our way through the chapter, and there's some great principles that Nehemiah helps us to follow. How do you do your best at trying to handle conflict that comes your way? So let's, first of all, examine the conflict. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. Again, reminder, they're in the midst of rebuilding the walls. So they were about halfway up when that last chapter, when opposition came and people were coming against them, Sanballat and Tobias. So they're in the midst of rebuilding the walls, but there's a cry of protest. In verse 2, they were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. In other words, we've been kind of leaving our family, going to work on the wall, maybe not doing our, our family jobs, and maybe not doing uh, the work in the fields, and we're, we're getting low on food. I mean, that's a, that's a need, right? Ooh, we need some food to survive. Verse 3, others said, we've mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. So they're getting food, but what did they do to get it? They've mortgaged everything they own. So now they're in debt to get the food that they need while they're also trying to work on the wall. Verse 4, others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay taxes. How many of you know whether you're in a building program, a rebuilding of the wall as Nehemiah did, taxes keep going? In the United States of America, taxes keep going. So they were doing all of these things, borrowing to pay taxes. Verse 5 says, we belong to the same family as those who are wealthy. Our children are just like yours or theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters and we're helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. They're hungry. They're in debt, and in a sense, they're being abused and taken advantage of, selling some of the members of their family into slavery to try to get money for food to survive while trying to rebuild the wall. I would call that some conflict. 
There's some internal conflict taking place. Now, verse 6 says, this is Nehemiah, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. That's pretty understandable, right? When you hear of injustice, when you hear of something that's not going well or not going right, he's saying, I'm getting angry. Now, people were knowingly and blatantly kind of going against what God was desiring and the instructions that God had, the clear teaching of God's word. How do you relate to one another? How do you handle those relationships? And some people will look to this and say that with Nehemiah, it was a little bit more of a righteous anger. Why? Because God was being dishonored. His people were uh, being dishonored. His work was being thwarted. And there was injustice being committed. This wasn't just, well, I'm mad because something's not right and it's not the way I want it. He was angry because these were some things that were against God and his word. So the balance of the chapter then lays out a handful of principles. Great steps, hopefully for you, great steps for me on how to handle conflict. First of all, first principle from Nehemiah, how do you handle conflict? Think before you speak. That's a good one. Verse 7, after thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. I told them, you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. We are to think before we speak. But many times, isn't that a foreign concept? I mean, let's just be honest. How many times don't we just blurt out and speak before thinking? Because you get mad, you get angry, you get irritated, agitated, upset. Somebody says something, does something, it's a conflict. And so what do you do? You just erupt and you let them have it. And you let them have it pretty good. In fact, sometimes you're awful quick thinking on your feet, and maybe you get in some good digs while you're at it. So they did something, they said something to you, and you've, you've sent some zingers their way. Anybody identify with that, or is that just people in other churches? Okay. We've got a few honest people in here saying yes. Everybody else is just pointing to the church down the road. Okay. James and his New Testament book, he says, we are to be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It fits in what Nehemiah is doing here, but we often have it reversed. We are slow to listen, but we're quick to speak and quick to become angry. What Nehemiah is doing, he heard what took place, he was angry as a result, but then he thought about it before responding. Think before you speak. Many times when something takes place and we shoot from the hip and we just let it rip with somebody in some conflict, how many of you know many times we can make it worse before we even get started? We think we're going to make something better and we think, well, I'm mad because of what you did or because of what you said. I'm going to tell you how I feel. And we launch into something Only later on do we stop and think, hmm, maybe that wasn't so wise. Maybe I should have paused. Maybe I should have thought things through first. And that's what Nehemiah did. He thought it over, and then he spoke. Now, in this language, the original language here of Hebrew, as it's written, 
this phrase about thinking it over is made up of a, a handful of a couple phrases or words. One is to give counsel or advice, and the other talks about the inner man. This word's also translated heart over 500 times in the Old Testament. So you kind of put some of those things together, some of the scholars have done, and if you would literally translate it, it's almost as if he's saying, I listened to my heart, I counseled with myself, I'm pausing, I'm reflecting, I'm thinking things through before I jump into it. How many of you would say, yeah, if I did that the next time a conflict arose, that might be a pretty good first start if we think before we speak. He didn't go off on them. Certainly he was mad. Certainly he was angry. Injustice was taking place. But God's word says he thought it through and then spoke. He thought long and hard. He's, he's maybe thinking about the pros and the cons. What happens if I approach it this way? What happens if I approach it that way? You ever maybe paused and thought things through before responding. You know, what, what, what tends to happen is somebody does us wrong and we are just ready to let anybody and everybody know about it. We'll, we'll, we'll tell a friend, uh, we'll go on social media, uh, we'll, we'll fire off a, a letter, an email, whatever. We just, we just start unloading on anybody and everyone. And then we pause. and Maybe we think things through a little bit. And we realized maybe how I first started to approach this might not have been the best. So Nehemiah is giving some great insight to think before we speak. Try to put some things in proper perspective. Maybe go to God and seek some wisdom rather than launching out. Sometimes we can launch out kind of in our flesh. Now, the flesh sometimes feels good, right, to respond you ever, you ever feel good when you, you just light into somebody and you, immediately you feel good because you were zinging them and then you stop and then you realize, I think I just zinged them a little harder than they got me and now I've just made things worse. So Nehemiah says, think before you speak. But he follows it up with another principle because the end of verse 7, he says, then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. Don't just think before you speak, but deal with the conflict directly. Directly. This is important. Think it through and then respond. Again, many times we just launch into whatever our actions, whatever our flesh says to do. Yell, scream, go to somebody else. He said, I'm thinking it through, and then I'm going to deal with it directly. So he's bringing together the people that it deals with. Here's a quote about confrontation and conflict. Someone said this, confrontation is caring enough about another person to get the conflict on the table and talk about it. Caring enough. Get the conversation on the table and talk about it. Nehemiah was thinking it through, and they said, hey, let's get the people together. There's some conflict. There's some things taking place here that's not right. Let's get all the people together, put the conflict out there, and let's start working through it. So he decides to deal with it and publicly confront those who created the strife. Now, this was involving all of the people of Israel in, in various ways. Many were being affected. Again, you've got the hungry ones. You've got those who are in debt. You've got those who are being taken advantage of. And you've got people on the other end who are doing the taking advantage. 
They were the ones who had a little bit more, and they were abusing and taking advantage of those who had less. So he's saying, listen, this involves all kinds of people. Let's bring it together, and let's start working our way through. Kind of echoes what Jesus would later teach. New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. When there's an issue, when there's a conflict, you go to the person. True? Now, is that human nature? It's okay to respond. Some of you are shaking your heads, and I would agree with you. Human nature is not necessarily to go directly to the person you have an issue with. Human nature is go to someone who you think is going to take your side. Go to someone who's sympathetic to you, right? And many times that means a third party. Here's here's what uh, President Woodrow Wilson said. He said, if you come at me with your fists doubled, I think I can promise you mine will double as fast as yours. But if you come at me and say, let us sit down, let us take counsel together, and if we differ from one another... We'll find we're not so different after all, that the points on which we differ are few and the points on which we agree are many, and that if we only have patience and candor and the desire to get together, we will. So you stop and you think and then address it or deal with it directly. But we tend to not do that. Or, or at least some of the people in other churches, because it might be hard to be a little honest. But we tend to, or people can tend to, number one, just put your head in the sand and hope it goes away. How many of you or someone you know tends to take that approach, right? There's an issue, there's a conflict, and you just hope, if I don't say anything about it, if I don't do anything about it, it's going to go away and it's going to get better. Many times people say, let's just kind of avoid it. Let's just kind of, let's kind of be cautious about it. Or when trying to deal with it, sometimes it's done indirectly. Maybe instead of personally meeting, maybe it's a text or an email or even a phone call. And yet all of those things can be misconstrued. You ever gotten a text from someone and you misunderstood the tone of the text? Right? Because you're typing fast and there might be spelling errors, there might be punctuation errors, or most likely zero punctuation. And you're trying to interpret from a text what a person really means. You know, are they happy when they texted this? Are they upset when they texted this? Are they being sarcastic when they texted this? Or are they being straightforward and honest? It's sometimes in a text, a little challenging. Sometimes in an email, a little challenging. Sometimes on the phone, you know, you can hear the voice, but you don't always see the facial expressions. And so many times, people, we will, try to do everything but deal with the issue directly. Now, we'll try to deal with the issue, but many times that means going to a third party, someone that we think is going to hear our side. I mean, boy, so-and-so did me wrong. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you how bad they did me wrong. And what are you waiting to see? What are you hoping to hear? Oh, you are right. They are bad. You, oh, poor you, right? 
Don't you feel better when you hear people kind of take your side? And so we'll go to a third party. We'll unload on them our version of things and then feel good and hope maybe that person's going to go straighten things out for us. Is that what Nehemiah did? You know, I hear something or other. He brought all the people. Here's the ones who are being affected, the ones who were kind of taken advantage, those who were being taken advantage of. He brought them all together. He said, listen, what's taking place is not right, and we're going to deal with it directly. We're not going to go to a, a third party. Because human nature is we tend to take the path of least resistance. If there's an issue with someone and we want to address it, sometimes uh, maybe you go to someone who's near the person, related to the person, friends with the person, unload on them, hope that it gets back to the person who then apologizes and makes it right with you. It doesn't always work that way. In fact, you know, it's sometimes that game of telephone. You start sharing an, an issue, or you start sharing a story, and by the time it gets around, it's way out of control, much different than where it started, if we would simply deal with the issue directly. If someone comes to you and says, boy, do you know what so-and-so said? You know what so-and-so did? You know what our first question or statement ought to be? Have you talked to them about it? Because what are they wanting you to do? They want you to hear. You're going to hear them out. They're going to feel heard and stop. And now all of a sudden, you're carrying the stuff from somebody else. And now you're going to try to make it right. Nehemiah's example is think before you speak and then deal with it directly. He's going to get the people together and try to find a resolution. Try to, you know, try to get all of the people here to make the issue right. He's going to share who's right, who's wrong, not based on my thoughts or principles. He's going to guide people back to the word of God as they deal with the issue. Listen, there's so much to do in the kingdom of God. We ought not to be in conflict one with another. That's, that's what Nehemiah is about to share. Listen, we're rebuilding the wall. There's a lot that needs to take place. We're about halfway done. We've still got more to go. We've got people on the outside that are opposing us. Let's not have any divisions inside. So whether that's something in church, whether that's something in the home, whether that's something in the school, whether that's something in the job, different ideas of issues on how to deal with that. Think before we speak. Deal with the conflict directly. Thirdly, the principle that I believe he shares with us is this. We need to remember our witness. Remember our witness. So verse 8, at the meeting, I, Nehemiah, said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who've had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you're selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. Then I pressed further, it says, what you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? In other words, remember your witness as Christians, as believers, as followers of the one true God, honor and obey him. 
Verse 10, I myself, as well as my brothers and workers, have been lending the people money and grain, but stop the business of charging interest. In other words, stop the abuse. Stop the taking advantage of these other people. Restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day. Repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Say, listen. All kinds of other people know what's taking place here. And it's not a good look. We are to represent our God. We are to have a witness of Christ. And if they see people who are at odds with one another, why in the world would they want to be like us? That sound familiar? If individuals, if if Christians are infighting or opposing one another and the world sees us, then why in the world would I want to come to church? Why would I want to be a Christian? I mean, if that's the way you act at school, if that's the way you act in the job, and you're, you're calling yourself a Christian, why should I want what you've got? Remember your witness, Nehemiah says. They were called to be a light to the nations, this this land of Israel. But their behavior was kind of dark and kind of shady. They were not reflecting the light of God. They weren't in a right relationship with God and certainly how they were affecting and dealing with the people around them. To use some of the analogies of what Jesus might refer to in the New Testament, rather than making people thirsty for God and wanting more about Him, they were losing their saltiness. They were not truly being a good witness. Jesus said, you're the light on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. A lot of different illustrations saying, you are to represent me, to live for me, be an example, and point other people to me. Here's all these people, and they're seeing the people in Jerusalem. They're they're rebuilding the wall, but they're seeing this person charge this person interest, and if they don't have enough money, well, then I guess uh, I'll take take your kids. I'll take your property. I'll, I'll get rich off of you while we're trying to rebuild the wall. The people around are saying, well, this this is the people of God? This is the people who's rebuilding the walls of this city? Look how they treat each other. Why would they want to turn and follow this, what should be a loving and kind and compassionate and caring God, when they're not really loving, kind, caring, and compassionate for one another? And so when you and I are trying to resolve conflicts, whether it's Christian and Christian, Christian and non-Christian, whether it's in the church, in the home, in the school, in the workplace, wherever it might be, understand you and I are to remember our witness. Because how many of you know people are watching you? I don't know if that scares you or not. I don't know if that's something that you are thinking about or reminded about, but no doubt people see you. They're not going to tell you that they are. Hey, I'm a creeper. I'm, 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 I'm watching you. I'm, I'm stalking your social medias. I'm, I'm listening to every conversation you have. They're not going to say that, but basically they're doing that. Because when you and I say, I'm a Christian and I follow God, 
and I go to church, I go to Alger Assembly of God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take part in the trunk or treat outreach. We're wanting to be a blessing to our community, and we're wanting to do this, and we're wanting to do that. People's ears perk up a little bit, right? Their antennas go up. And they might not say anything, but they're going to watch. Maybe watch a little extra careful. They're going to pay attention to what you say. What kind of language is coming out of that person's mouth? What kind of an attitude does this person have? What kind of a witness are they at school? Because even people who are not Christians know how a Christian ought to act. Have you encountered that? Whether it's at school, in the workplace, out in the community, there's a lot of people who don't know God, but they know how a person who knows God ought to live and act. So when you and I say we're a Christian and maybe you wear a youth group T-shirt, you wear an Alger Assembly of God T-shirt, you wear something that has something about God, Jesus, or church, people are taking note. What's their language like? Is it pure and clean or is it just like what everybody else says? What's their actions like? How, how do they treat their bosses, how do they treat their employees, how do they treat their coworkers in, in a job situation? Our actions, our speech, our character, it's seen a lot by those around us, particularly non-Christians. Very rarely will somebody tell you, hey, I'm watching you. Sometimes you hear about it when you mess up. Sometimes you hear about it when you've done well, and they say, man, that was really a challenge. That was really encouraging to see how you handle that. But most of the time, people aren't going to say a thing. So for you and I, we are to remember our witness, who we are in Christ. People who don't know Christ are going to see us. Family members, friends, our family, our church body sees us. Our family sees us, our, our work family, our school family, people that are around us see us. Most importantly, how many of you know, nothing that we say or do is hidden from God. And so we, we might put up the best front as to how we're dealing with people in the church or in the community or in the school or in the workplace, but God knows really what's taking place. God knows how we're dealing with people. God knows whether we're consistent. God knows all things. So Nehemiah is getting them together. He's saying, listen, don't you know, all these surrounding peoples are seeing what's happening. This is a great work. We've got a lot to do for God, and we've got to make sure that we're doing it the right way. So he's giving instructions. Think before you speak. Deal with the conflict directly. Remember your witness. And finally, the encouragement is walk your talk. Walk your talk. Live out what you speak. Verse 12, they replied, we'll give back everything. We'll demand nothing more from the people. We'll do as you say. Then I called the priests and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and your property. That's kind of an illustration, wearing this robe and shaking the folds out, saying, hey, this is what's going to happen if you don't follow through and walk what you're saying in your talk. 
And the whole assembly responded, amen. They praised the Lord. The people did as they had promised. Now, these last number of verses, it's a little bit of an aside. It's Nehemiah kind of saying, kind of off the record, here's how I've tried to walk the talk. Verse 14, for the entire 12 years I was governor of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. Former governors, in contrast, laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine and 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. He's saying, listen, here's what's normal about people who have been elevated to a position of authority. They normally would act like this. I've tried not to do that. He says, I'm walking the talk. I'm not just telling you to handle things appropriately. He's saying, here's how I've tried to handle things appropriately. Verse 16, he says, I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire land. I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table besides visitors from all other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included an ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. Every 10 days, we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people had already carried a heavy burden. Remember, my God, all that I've done for these people and bless me. He's saying, listen, I'm not just coming down on you for what you've done and then living the same way secretly. How many of you know things come out? In this day and age, I mean, it seems like every week there's a coach or a politician, something that they said, something that they emailed, something that they tweeted or posted years ago comes back to bite them. I mean, literally, in the last week, you've had an example or two, sports. It's not just famous people that that happens to. Average, ordinary people, it happens to us, right? So the things that you say, the, the things that are posted, the things that are emailed, the, the voicemails that are left, all of our interactions continue down the line. So Nehemiah is saying, listen. I'm not just telling you to act this way, but I did the opposite. He's saying, I've tried to be faithful. I had some perks in my position. He said, I didn't rely on the perks. I've tried to, I've tried to bless others. I've tried to help others. I'm trying to walk out what I talk. He tries to live consistently. This isn't just a one-time shot. Hey, everybody, let's do this. And from this day forward, I guess I'll change too. Nehemiah is saying, I've tried to live this way. I'm trying to live consistently. He says he didn't take the salary. He did work. He sacrificed financially. In other words, what he's saying is, I've got this background of faithfulness. How many of you know we might, we might try to build up a, a lifestyle of faithfulness in our words or in our actions, and many times it takes a lifetime or at least many years to build up. But how many of you know that credibility can be wiped out with one tweet, wiped out with one email, 
wiped out with one action, one statement, one conversation, one whatever. And so if you and I, if we're trying to deal with conflict, if we're trying to help overcome, we've then got to walk what we talk. We can't say, hey, you got to do this and point the finger, knowing full well we've not done that ourselves. So what Nehemiah is saying is, listen, we've got to live it out, live out what we speak. And by the way, here's how I have tried to do that over these last number of years. Lifetime to earn, but we can lose it in a moment. Came across this story. There's an old monastery in Germany, and it's said that you could see two racks of ancient deer antlers permanently interlocked. The story goes that these animals had been fighting fiercely and their horns became so tangled they could not be disengaged. And as a result, both animals died of hunger. It's an illustration of what many times happens with you and I or some of the situations that we might find ourselves in. When we kind of lock horns or, or lock wills, perhaps, one with another, and each one trying to have their own way, sometimes it gets interlocked, and both end up suffering. Nehemiah is saying, listen, here's some ways. Let's try to handle the conflict. Let's try to deal with it appropriately. I don't know if you're going through any of that. I would venture to say at some point in time you have. So whether that's now or that's in the past or whether something like that's coming in the future, Nehemiah says, here are some great principles. When conflict comes, think before you speak. And then deal with it directly. Remember the witness you and I have for Christ. And then finally, walk the talk. Seek to live out what it is that we're trying to speak.